This is a continuation of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. Tracing the connection between exports and loans, Landsberg writes, In 1890-91, a Romanian loan was floated through the German banks, which had already in previous years made advances on this loan. It was used chiefly to purchase railway materials in Germany. In 1891, German exports to Romania amounted to 55 million marks. The following year they dropped to 39.4 million marks and, with fluctuations, to 25.4 million in 1900. Only in very recent years have they regained the level of 1891 thanks to two new loans. German exports to Portugal rose following the loans of 1888 to 21,100,000 in 1890. Then, in the two following years, they dropped to 16,200,000 and 7,400,000 and regained their former level only in 1903. The figures of German trade with Argentina are still more striking. Loans were floated in 1888 and 1890. German exports to Argentina reached 60,700,000 marks in 1889. Two years later, they amounted to only 18,600,000 marks less than one-third of the previous figure. It was not until 1901 that they regained and surpassed the level of 1889, and then only as a result of new loans floated by the state and municipalities, with advances to build power stations and with other credit operations. Exports to Chile as a consequence of the loan of 1889 rose to 45,200,000 marks in 1892, and a year later dropped to 22,500,000 marks a new Chilean loan floated by the German banks in 1906 was followed by a rise of exports to 84,700,000 marks in 1907, only to fall again to 52,400,000 marks in 1908. From these facts, Landsberg draws the amusing petty bourgeois moral of how unstable and irregular export trade is when it is bound up with loans, how bad it is to invest capital abroad instead of naturally and harmoniously developing home industry. How costly are the millions in bakshish that Krupp has to pay in floating foreign loans, etc. But the facts tell us clearly, the increase in exports is connected with just these swindling tricks of finance capital, which is not concerned with bourgeois morality, but with skinning the ox twice. First it pockets the profits from the loan, then it pockets other profits from the same loan which the borrower uses to make purchases from Krupp or to purchase railway material from the steel syndicate, etc. I repeat that I do not, by any means, consider Landsberg's figures to be perfect, but I had to quote them because they are more scientific than Kautsky's and Spectator's, and because Landsberg showed the correct way to approach the question. In discussing the significance of finance capital in regard to exports, etc., one must be able to single out the connection of exports especially and solely with the tricks of the financiers, especially and solely with the sale of goods by cartels, etc. Simply to compare colonies with non-colonies, 
one imperialism with another imperialism, one semi-colony or colony, Egypt, with all other countries, is to evade and to obscure the very essence of the question. Kautsky's theoretical critique of imperialism has nothing in common with Marxism and serves only as a preamble to propaganda for peace and unity with the opportunists and the social chauvinists, precisely for the reason that it evades and obscures the very profound and fundamental contradictions of imperialism, the contradictions between monopoly and free competition which exist side by side with it, between the gigantic operations and gigantic profits of finance capital and honest trade in the free market, the contradiction between cartels and trusts on the one hand and non-cartelized industry on the other, etc. Just as a side note, I think this pamphlet overuses the term etc. You know, like chanting, profit and so on and so on. The notorious theory of ultra-imperialism invented by Kautsky is just as reactionary. Compare his arguments on this subject in 1915 with Hobson's arguments in 1902. Kautsky Cannot the present imperialist policy be supplanted by a new ultra-imperialist policy, which will introduce the joint exploitation of the world by internationally united finance capital in place of the mutual rivalries of national finance capitals? Such a new phase of capitalism is, at any rate, conceivable. Can it be achieved? Sufficient premises are still lacking to enable us to answer this question. Hobson Christendom, thus laid out in a few great federal empires, each with a retinue of uncivilized dependencies, seems to many the most legitimate development of present tendencies, and one which would offer the best hope of permanent peace on an assured basis of inter-imperialism. Kautsky called ultra-imperialism or super-imperialism what Hobson 13 years earlier described as inter-imperialism except for coining a new and clever catchword, replacing one Latin prefix by another. The only progress Kautsky has made in the sphere of scientific thought is that he gave out as Marxism what Hobson, in effect, described as the cant of English Parsons. After the Anglo-Boer War, it was quite natural for this highly honorable caste to exert their main efforts to console the British middle class and the workers who had lost many of their relatives on the battlefields of South Africa and who were obliged to pay higher taxes in order to guarantee still higher profits for the British financiers. And what better consolation could there be than the theory that imperialism is not so bad? That it stands close to the inter or ultra imperialism which can ensure permanent peace. No matter what the good intentions of the English Parsons or of sentimental Kautsky may have been, the only objective, i.e. real, social significance of Kautsky's theory is this. It is a most reactionary method of consoling the masses with hopes of permanent peace being possible under capitalism by distracting their attention from the sharp antagonisms and acute problems of the present times and directing it towards illusory prospects of an imaginary ultra-imperialism of the future. Deception of the masses. That is all there is in Kautsky's quote Marxist unquote theory. Indeed, it is enough to compare well-known and indisputable facts to become convinced of the utter falsity of the prospects which Kautsky tries to conjure up before the German workers and the workers of all lands. Let us consider India, Indochina, and China. 
It is known that these three colonial and semi-colonial countries, with a population of six to seven hundred million, are subjected to the exploitation of the finance capital of several imperialist powers. Great Britain, France, Japan, the USA, etc. Let us assume that these imperialist countries form alliances against one another in order to protect or enlarge their possessions, their interests, and their spheres of influence in these Asiatic states. These alliances will be inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances. Let us assume that all the imperialist countries conclude an alliance for the quote peaceful division of these parts of Asia. This alliance would be an alliance of internationally united finance capital. There are actual examples of alliances of this kind in the history of the 20th century, the attitude of the powers to China, for instance. We ask, is it conceivable, assuming that the capitalist system remains intact, and this is precisely the assumption that Kautsky does make, that such alliances could be more than temporary, that they would eliminate friction, conflicts, and struggle in every possible form. The question has only to be presented clearly for any other than a negative answer to be impossible. This is because the only conceivable basis under capitalism for the division of spheres of influence, interests, colonies, etc., is a calculation of the strength of those participating, their general economic, financial, military strength, etc. And the strength of these participants in the division does not change to an equal degree for the even development of different undertakings, trusts, branches of industry, or countries is impossible under capitalism. Half a century ago, Germany was a miserable, insignificant country. If her capitalist strength is compared with that of the Britain of that time, Japan compared with Russia in the same way. Is it conceivable that in 10 or 20 years time, the relative strength of the imperialist powers will have remained unchanged? It is out of the question. Therefore, in the realities of the capitalist system, and not in the banal Philistine fantasies of English Parsons, or of the German Marxist Kautsky, inter-imperialist or ultra-imperialist alliances, no matter what form they assume, whether of one imperialist coalition against another, or of a general alliance embracing all the imperialist powers, are inevitably nothing more than a truce in periods between wars. Peaceful alliances prepare the ground for wars, and in their turn grow out of wars, the one conditions the other, producing alternating forms of this peaceful and non-peaceful struggle on one and the same basis of imperialist connections and relations within world economics and world politics. But in order to pacify the workers and reconcile them with the social chauvinists who have deserted to the side of the bourgeoisie, Overwise Kautsky separates one link of a single chain from another, separates the present peaceful and ultra-imperialist, nay, ultra-ultra-imperialist, alliance of all the powers for the pacification of China, remember the suppression of the Boxer Rebellion, from the non-peaceful conflict of tomorrow, which will prepare the ground for another peaceful general alliance for the partition, say, of Turkey on the day after tomorrow, etc, etc. Instead of showing the living connection between periods of imperialist peace and periods of imperialist war, Kautsky presents the workers with a lifeless abstraction in order to reconcile them to their lifeless leaders. An American writer, 
Hill in his A History of the Diplomacy in the International Development of Europe refers in his preface to the following periods in the recent history of diplomacy. 1. The Era of Revolution 2. The Constitutional Movement 3. The Present Era of Commercial Imperialism Another writer divides the history of Great Britain's world policy since 1870 into four periods. 1. The First Asiatic Period, that of the struggle against Russia's advance in Central Asia towards India. 2. The African Period, approximately 1885 to 1902, that of the struggle against France for the partition of Africa. The Fashoda Incident of 1898, which brought her within a hair's breadth of war with France. 3. The Second Asiatic Period, Alliance with Japan against Russia. And 4. The European Period, chiefly anti-German. The political patrol clashes take place on the financial field, wrote the banker Reiser in 1905, showing how French finance capital, operating in Italy, was preparing the way for a political alliance of these countries, and how a conflict was developing between Germany and Great Britain over Persia, between all the European capitalists over Chinese loans, etc. Behold the living reality of peaceful, ultra-imperialist alliances in their inseparable connection with ordinary imperialist conflicts. Kautsky's obscuring of the deepest contradictions of imperialism, which inevitably boils down to painting imperialism in bright colors, leaves its traces in this writer's criticism of the political features of imperialism. Imperialism is the epoch of finance capital and of monopolies, which introduce everywhere the striving for domination, not for freedom. Whatever the political system, the result of these tendencies is everywhere reaction and extreme intensification of antagonisms in this field. Particularly intensified become the yoke of national oppression and the striving for annexations, i.e. the violation of national independence, for annexation is nothing but the violation of the right of nations to self-determination. Hilferding rightly notes the connections between imperialism and the intensification of national oppression. In the newly opened up countries, he writes, the capital imported into them intensifies antagonisms and excites against the intruders the constantly growing resistance of the peoples who are awakening to national consciousness. This resistance can easily develop into dangerous measures against foreign capital. The old social relations become completely revolutionized. The age-long agrarian isolation of, quote, nations without history, unquote, is destroyed, and they are drawn into the capitalist whirlpool. Capitalism itself gradually provides the subjugated with the means and resources for their emancipation, and they set out to achieve the goal which once seemed highest to the European nations, the creation of a united national state as a means to economic and cultural freedom. This movement for national independence threatens European capital in its most valuable and most promising fields of exploitation, and European capital can maintain its domination only by continually increasing its military forces. To this must be added that it is not only in newly opened up countries, but also in the old, that imperialism is leading to annexation, to increase national oppression and, consequently, also to increasing resistance. While objecting to the intensification of political reaction by imperialism, Kautsky leaves in the shade a question that has become particularly urgent, v. 
the impossibility of unity with the opportunists in the epoch of imperialism. While objecting to the annexations, he presents his objections in a form that is most acceptable and least offensive to the opportunists. He addresses himself to a German audience, yet he obscures the most topical and important point. For instance, the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine by Germany. In order to appraise this mental aberration of Kautsky's, I shall take the following example. Let us suppose that a Japanese condemns the annexation of the Philippines by the Americans. The question is, will many believe that he does so because he has a horror of annexations as such, and not because he himself has the desire to annex the Philippines? And shall we not be constrained to admit that the fight the Japanese is waging against annexations can be regarded as sincere and politically honest only if he fights against the annexation of Korea by Japan and urges freedom for Korea to secede from Japan? Kautsky's theoretical analysis of imperialism, as well as his economic and political critique of imperialism, are permeated through and through with a spirit absolutely irreconcilable with Marxism of obscuring and glossing over the fundamental contradictions of imperialism, and with a striving to preserve, at all costs, the crumbling unity with opportunism in the European working class movement. Chapter 9, Done. Which means that we only have one installment remaining, that being Chapter 10, entitled, The Place of Imperialism in History. Become a patron at patreon.com slash epicincredulity. One dollar a month will garner bonus content, an invite to the Discord, and early access to the Menagerie. This episode, for instance, will be available to patrons about six months before it's published. Higher levels of support come with even more perks. We will never advertise for any brand here at the Epoch of Incredulity. Aside from ourselves, I suppose. So for now, comrades, enjoy your Epoch. <laughs>